started. I'll pray for us. We expect it now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, we pray for Pastor Michael as he and Christina are in labor. We just pray that you'd uh, watch over them, be with them, and uh, comfort them, Lord. And we pray that everything would go smoothly and uh, that you, they would remember that they are loved uh, during this time. Help us as we talk about apologetics this morning. Help us to be people who want to be uh, mastered by your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning. Good morning. Uh, did everyone get a, a handout? We have a lot of material to cover this morning. But next week I don't have as much material, so it's okay if we don't get through. Two more? Okay. Alright, uh, how many of you guys are familiar with apologetics? A little bit, a little bit. Now, now, when you guys think of apologetics, what do you guys think about? Defending the faith. Defending the faith, yeah. Defending the faith. Yeah, so... Uh, I know the last Sunday school lesson we went through was the doctrines of grace, right? The five points of Calvinism. So you might have the question, right? Why should we even bother doing apologetics? If God's the one who saves people, if God's the one who convinces them <coughs> convinces them of his own truths, what's the point of defending the faith, right? Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. Actually, for the sake of time, I will just read it for us. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. Actually, I'll just read verse 15, because that's the most important part. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So it's not that God needs us to do apologetics but here he's he's requiring us to do apologetics so there's a distinction between what god <laughs> requires and what he needs and apologetics is something that god uses to bring people to himself so here in first peter tells us that we need to have a reason for the hope that we have and that's what apologetics is here to do now some of you probably are familiar with apologetics you've sat in maybe sunday school classes or seminars and most most churches, they largely do what's called classical apologetics, okay? Classical apologetics is the traditional way of defending Christianity, and I think when we go through some of these uh, arguments, you'll be pretty familiar with, um, with them. So, for an example, um, one, one, one way that classical apologetics seeks to defend the faith is by using evidence or by using logic and philosophy, um, there's these things called the theistic proofs. Have you guys heard of theistic proofs? Basically, proofs of God. Okay, and uh, one one example, if you look down on the sheet, there's there's I gave you two examples: the cosmological and the teleological. Okay, um, I think you guys are probably familiar with the cosmological. Cosmological basically argues that every everything has to have a cause, right? Anything that begins to exist has to have a cause, and the universe began to exist. Therefore, it had to have a cause, and God must be that cause. So they're arguing from, from basic logic, right? They're arguing from logic that God must exist. So that's one way that classical ab- apologetics has, has sought to defend the faith. And other, other ways they try to do it are by, um, by arguing for evidence for the 
scriptures. The New Testament is, is a good example here. Um, now, because people might think, okay, maybe you can argue that there was an ultimate cause, and maybe that cause was God, but how do we know uh, which God it is? So, classical apologetics, they want to argue for the God of Scripture. Now, people might be thinking, well, Scripture is such an old book. You know, how do we know that Scripture is true? How can we take anything it says as authoritative and true? Good morning. Is there Are there more? Oh, okay. It's okay. So, in classical apologetics, what they want to do is try to prove the um, the probability of of the scripture is it really legitimate? Now, now here, if you look at the sheet <clears throat> under New Ca- New Testament canon validity, here's some examples of how um, people have tried to show that the New Testament is a valid document. So, if you look at, for example, look at Homer, Homer's Iliad, right? Homer's Iliad. See that where it says 500 years? That's the, that's the number of years between the original copy, I mean the original writing, and the, that the and the earliest copy that we have. So there's a 500 year span between Homer's actual Iliad and the earliest copy that we have. And we also see there's 643 copies of this, okay? And there's 95% accuracy amongst those copies. But if you look at the Greek New Testament. You see that the, the amount of time between the original, the first writings of the New Testament and the earliest copy we have is only 100 years, right? So the likelihood of people messing up within 100 years is a lot less than 500 years. So that's one way they try to argue for the New Testament canon. Also, the Iliad has 643 copies, or look at Plato. Plato, there's only seven copies, Right? But the Greek New Testament, we have 5,600 copies. All right, So we have more to compare with to see if, if they're being accurate, to see if they're agreeing with themselves. And so these are, these are ways that classical apologists have used to say Christianity is valid, Christianity is legitimate. But my question this morning for you is, is this evidence enough? So we went through the theistic proofs. Uh, we went through talking about the New Testament canon and whether or not it's valid, but the use of evidence, let me ask you, is the use of evidence enough? Is it enough to convince people of the truth? And I I think this morning I want to try to convince you that there are limits. There are limits to evidence, and therefore there are limits to this classical way of defending the faith. Okay? So, for example, look back at the, the theistic proofs. Okay. The theistic proofs, they seek to prove God with logic, right? They seek to prove God with logic. Um, but really, how far can these theistic proofs take us? So if you look at the cosmological argument, they say every beginning, everything that has to exist has to have a cause, therefore God must be that cause. That, that's true. That's a true argument. But can this proof point us to the God of Scripture? Why does it have to be the God of Scripture that it proves? It can be maybe a team of people. It could be any kind of intelligent designer. It doesn't prove specifically the God of Scripture. Okay, so that's one limit of the theistic proofs. And when we look at the, the data concerning the, the New Testament canon, right, we say, oh, wow, this, is, this has a lot more validity than even some of these other writings like Plato or Aristotle that we you know, hold to. But really... It's an argument for probability. 
if you're looking at the New Testament canon and you're saying, oh, this one, you know, has a lot more copies than Plato, or this one has a lot more copies than the Iliad and Homer, you're not really proving that the Bible is true. You're just saying it's more trustworthy and it's probably more accurate than Plato, but you're not actually proving that it's true. So I think this classical way of defending the faith, it, it is it is helpful, it's beneficial. I don't want to say we shouldn't engage in this, but it's not, I don't think it's the best way because we can't, ultimately, we can't reason people to God. We can't reason people to God. And that's another limit. If you look down, it's under uh, post It's under that picture. Do you see that? That picture? There's probably no God. So classical apologetics seeks to prove that there probably is a God. But it can't exactly say that there is a God. Okay? And another limit to classical apologetics is that post-fall man is not morally neutral. Okay? Pastor Wade taught us this in the, the five points of Calvinism, right? Total depravity. We're not, we're not neutral. We are in rebellion, right? And that's why in those verses that I put down there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, talks about how the gospel and the, the wisdom of God is, is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But, um, but their wisdom is foolishness to us. See, th- there is a... Um, what I want to say is there's no neutrality. Everyone is either in covenant relationship with the Lord or they're in broken covenant relationship with the Lord. They've, they either know God, they know the truth, they've been convinced by the Holy Spirit, or they have not. So it, in, a, in a sense, it is not the best way to try to build blocks of evidence to try to get people to believe what we believe. Okay. Now, <clears throat> hmm. now, all the way at the bottom of the page, distinctives of classical apologetics. Okay. Um, so what I'm trying to do this morning is to distinguish between the normal way that we think about apologetics and, and a different way. And we'll get to that different way first. But if you look there at the distinctives of classical apologetics, you see that it is an inductive method. So by inductive, they, they seek to, again, they use evidence to make building blocks, and they try to get to an end point. Okay? That's one distinctive of classical apologetics. And uh, if you look at the next page on the back, I think that's a good description of what classical apologetics seeks to do. Okay, let me read that for you. So scripture is not used as a starting point for classical apologetics. They seek to begin by proving God's existence by appealing to general revelation, like like logic and, and math and science. And after proving God's existence, they use the facts of history, archaeology, science, to prove the reliability of the Bible. And then once they prove the reliability of the Bible, you can prove that it's inspired by God. So they have this, again, this building block mentality. But but the basic premise of classical apologetics is that it assumes neutrality. It assumes that man will, by his own reason, listen to the Christian evidences and say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, therefore I will believe. But scripture teaches us differently. Scripture teaches us that logic is merely a tool. Evidence is merely a tool. And a sinful person will use logic sinfully. And a Christian will use logic for the glory of God. Okay, So that's what we want to keep in our minds when we think about apologetics. 
So basically, if you look down on <coughs> on number three, classical apologetics it basically uses evidence to prove the Bible. Okay, that's the distinctive of classical apologetics. They want to use evidence to prove the Bible, and it, when you use evidence to to prove the Bible, though, you make man the judge, because man is the one who's wrestling with this evidence and making his own determination. But should man be the judge or should God be the judge? Okay, that's how I want us to think this morning. Should man be the judge or should God be the judge? Classical apologetics, um, it tends to make man the judge. He's the one that has to put the evidence together to try to believe God. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Any questions so far? Okay, now down to number three, a better way. Is there a better way then? If we can't reason people to God... If we can't reason people to God, then what should we do? What should we do? Well, let me start by reading the Westminster Confession of Faith 7.1, okay? Actually, David, can Tub, can you read that for us? Yeah. Uh, I? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any uh, fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary um, concession on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by ways of covenant. Okay. So the first part of that is saying the distance between God and the creature is so great, right? And that is that is pretty much the most fundamental truth of Christianity. It's called the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. And unless we operate on this creator-creature distinction, we're not going to do theology right. We're not going to do apologetics right. Okay. So Westminster Confession 7.1, it confirms that there's a fundamental difference between the creator and the creature. Okay. And look at the next part that I underlined. With this distance between the creator and the creature, the creature could never have any fruition of God. The creature could not have any knowledge of God because of this creator-creature distinction, and then look at the next part I underlined, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So there's a huge chasm between the creator and the creature, and the creature could never have any knowledge of God, but by the creator condescending, coming down to the level of the creature. So that's the only way that the creature can claim any knowledge, can claim any knowledge about God. That's how we uh, know theology. We don't we don't do theology. We don't try to look at our surroundings and say, "Oh, okay, the sun works this way, so I could deduce certain things about God from that." No, God tells us about himself. See, that's Christianity. Christianity is not that we ascend to God um, even in our salvation, right? We don't work our way up to God. In the same way we don't think our way up to God. God speaks to us. That's what the scripture is for. Okay? So that's what I want us to to remember as we talk about apologetics. It's not us trying to get up to God. It's God coming down to us. That's what Christmas is, right? Christmas, Jesus came down, incarnation, right? He came down to be with us. He became like the creature, okay? And we should we should praise him for that. He, he came down to us. There's no way that we could know him, but he wanted to know us. He came down to us. And he was pleased to do it, as it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was pleased to express himself by way of covenant. Um, so now, we looked a little bit at the distinctives of 
classical apologetics. I said it was an inductive method, right? Think about the scientific method. You try to uh, put together the pieces and reason your way up. We also said that <clears throat> um, scripture is not the starting point, right? Evidence is the starting point for classical apologetics. And, um, and we also said that it makes man the judge, right? Because if evidence, evidence is the starting point, and man has to judge the evidence, man is the judge, okay? But now let's look at the distinctives of presuppositional apologetics, okay? Presuppositional apologetics uses a more deductive, deductive method of reasoning. So a classical apologetics, they claim to start with a, a blank slate. Man is completely neutral, and he just needs more and more information to get his knowledge of God. Presuppositional apologetics argues that, no, we need to presuppose the God of Scripture before we can have any knowledge of him. We need to presuppose the God of Scripture before we can have any knowledge of him. We need to presuppose that he exists and that he speaks to us. Okay? We need to presuppose that he exists and he speaks to us. And from that, we can then begin to deduce other things about, about God, about theology, about the scriptures. Now read with me um, under deductive reasoning. So presuppositional apologetics presupposes the truth of Christianity and scripture. And it shows that you cannot make sense out of logic, moral values, science, and the intelligibility of the world unless you first presuppose the truth of Christianity and Scripture. So, presuppositional apologetics doesn't assume that man is a blank, clean slate. Presuppositional apologetics assumes that man is already prejudiced in his heart. <coughs> man is already biased, right? And that, again, that's what Pastor Wade taught with total depravity. After the fall, we are all infected by sin, and we will use logic, we will use science, we will use technology sinfully unless God comes and intervenes. He comes down to the creature and changes us. Okay? Now, you might be thinking, doesn't this isn't this circular, right? Because we're using a deductive method where we're saying that the Bible is the starting point. And when we say the Bible is the starting point, we're saying God is the judge, right? Because God, the Bible is God's word, so God is the judge. But isn't that circular, right? In that little picture I put in there with that circle. You see that? Isn't it circular to say that the Bible is the word of God because the Bible tells us so? The Bible is infallible because it is the word of God, but because it tells us so, right? It's circular, Presuppositional apologetics is often um, accused of being circular, and and frankly, it is. I will admit that presuppositional apologetics is circular. Okay, but let me ask you a question. So we're at number four now. Presuppositional, circular, illegitimate. Okay, does the fact that presuppositional apologetics is circular does that make it an illegitimate way to defend the faith? And I would argue no. Okay, so think about this question. Question. Uh, we're looking at 4A. Is it possible to reason, think, learn, or argue without presuppositions and with complete neutrality? 
What do you think? I don't think so, right? Uh, I mean, look what I, I guess I wrote it down there, right there. If you say yes to this question, you're already presupposing something, right? If you say yes, it is possible to reason without presuppositions. You're presupposing that it is possible to reason without presuppositions, right? If you say no, you're presupposing that it is impossible, okay? So either way, you're presupposing something, and I think that kind of just proves the point. We're all presupposing things when we reason. We're not reasoning in a vacuum, in complete neutrality, okay? We all have presuppositions. Are there any questions at this point? What if you're, like, what if you look at both sides of, like, the yes and the no, like, you know, so it's like, um, <laughs> so, like, you know, like, you look at both sides of the coin, so you look at, like, each side of the argument, instead mm-hmm. of saying just yes and no, instead of looking, like, yes, you can, or no, you can. Yeah. I feel like when you say, like, presupposition, I'm getting kind of confused by it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're going on, like, preconditions or, like, preconceived notions of what you think is true, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, what if you look at both sides mm-hmm. of the argument, you're not just saying, like, I'm right or you're right? Mm-hmm. Well, Why even, can't we just make yeah. a hybrid of these? Yeah, so... That, that is wise. That is the wise thing to do. If, we, or if we're having trouble making a decision between two sides, we always want to look at both sides, right? But that in itself, that attitude, that posture towards argumentation, okay, it presupposes that either side could be right. You see that? It presupposes that either side could be right. But as Christians... We know that the Bible is the absolute truth. We know the Bible is the absolute authority. So we can presuppose that the Bible is the absolute truth. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's always... Oh, you're asking, like, question, yeah. So, so it's always going to be circular. What's up, Shuri? Um, so it seems like your argument is that um, uh, in order to get rid of bias or personal bias or whatever, we have to look at the Bible as the starting point, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but even even that is not getting rid of bias because right. our bias right. is scripture. Right. So what I'm saying is there's, it's impossible to be unbiased. But we want to make sure that our bias is the scripture. Right. Yeah. And we do that by? By being in the scripture. <laughs> but, <laughs> being in the word. But, but couldn't you argue that people can interpret scripture in their own ways too? For mm-hmm. example, like Westboro. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, that's a great point. Church. So, yeah. for example, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm done. So, for example, I have a friend. He, last summer, converted to Roman Catholicism. Okay? Roman Catholicism teaches that the church is the key, the sole interpreter of Scripture. Okay? The church is what interprets Scripture. So, really, they're giving the church the authority over the Scripture. Okay? Here at Indelible Grace, we are what's called Reformed. We're, um, we uphold the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay? Westminster Confession of Faith was a reaction <coughs> to the Roman Catholic Church. Now, how do you get around this, though? I mean, it, it would seem like Chewy says that you have to have an interpreter, like people interpret the Scripture. Uh, what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, I think, I think I have it down uh, on the on the last page. Westminster Confession of Faith. Look at number three. Okay. Do you see that? I underlined it. Number three. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Okay? So, while the Roman Catholic Church says the Church interprets the Scripture, what we believe is that the Scripture interprets itself. Okay? So, 
I know you might be saying, well, well we still have to interpret scripture. <laughs> and and it is, it is like I said, presuppositional apologetics is circular. But the question is, which circle are you operating within? Okay. The Roman Catholic Church has serious flaws because they, they elevate their, their church's tradition to interpret the scripture. But we, I believe... <laughs> Interpret the scripture the way that scripture allows us to interpret it. Okay, it is a circular thing, but I, I think I think a good way to articulate it is um, we don't Roman Catholics um, interpret the truths of scripture, but I believe Protestants recognize the truths of scripture. Okay, and I think that's the abs- that's that's the big difference. We don't get out of it what we want to get out of it we we just merely recognize it we let it speak to us and i know it is sounding like a, a subjective thing but at the end of the day you can only have one authority it's it's a uh, man or it's god okay so the roman catholic church it is it is man it's the pope for us it's god speaking through his word so we need to presuppose that god is able to speak Okay, we need to presuppose that the Creator is able to speak to the creature. And if we presuppose that biblical truth that the Creator speaks to the creature, we can have confidence that Scripture is the infallible interpreter of itself. Does that make sense? I know it doesn't completely get us out of the conundrum, but I think that's that's the biblical way to think about about knowledge and theology and, and the interpretation of Scripture. Any more questions? Okay. Yeah. You say uh, scripture interprets itself. Do you mean like for each individual? So people reading scripture will have like a different, um, get something different from everyone else. No, I I mean there's there's uh, there's one one um, truth. There's one truth in scripture. So you don't. It's not like uh, Chewie will come to a passage and then I'll come to it the same passage and we'll say this this is teaching a different thing. One of us is going to be wrong. Okay. Yeah. And how do you know? You're letting scripture speak mm-hmm. for itself mm-hmm. using by each individual. Like yeah. Well, we the way that's what systematic theology is for. We look at the rest of the scripture and see if Chewie's interpretation is more in line with the rest of scripture, <coughs> or is my interpretation in line with the rest of scripture. Does that make sense? So it, it's all about context, looking at the whole canon. Thankfully, God just didn't just leave us with one verse. You know. He left us with a whole bunch of stuff, and it is sufficient for everything that we need. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I understand your concern, though, I, and I feel like, yeah, it probably doesn't get around. I don't. A, a non-Christian would definitely not be satisfied with anything that we're saying here, right? Right? A non-Christian would not be satisfied with anything that we're saying here today. But we can't forget that the non-Christian is living in unbelief. They're not neutral. <coughs> They're, they're calling us and saying, hey, you guys need to come over to this supposed neutral ground. But they're, they're presupposing that there is a neutral ground at all. Scripture teaches you're either in belief or you're in unbelief. So you use reason. You'll use scripture in an unbelieving way or you'll use scripture in a believing way. The difference is the spirit has worked in the believer. The spirit has not worked in the unbeliever. Okay? So... Any, any more questions before we go on? 
Oh, Dad, um, there was, a. Uh, I think, um, if you guys have ever heard of uh, Frederick Buechner, actually, no, he was referencing a C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis was, I think C.S. Lewis took the classical uh, approach um, to apologetics, and he, he said, like, um, his, like, the Christian faith never felt, the word, the phrase, he, or the uh, term he used was threadbare, like, their Christian faith was never seen as threadbare as when he successfully, then, uh, then oh, sorry, let me try to get it right. The Christian faith was never as threadbare as it was after he just successively defended the faith, mm-hmm. because um, there was no. I mean, like you, we can explain like these like proofs for God and like these like arguments for like just whatever worldview we have, mm-hmm. and I think they're very valuable. And mm-hmm. I think that you know, just it's good to know them and it's good mm-hmm. to like speak them as well. But then there is, um, like you said, there there is a point when you're not satisfied with just mere answers. Yeah. There there needs to be something that mm-hmm. plays into it. So. I mean, like, there's, like, plenty of people who can acknowledge that, like, they can, like, totally argue for the faith, and they can be mm-hmm. completely right, but then it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that God is, like, in their arguments, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think what we need to remember in conversion, when we're talking to our non-Christian friends, <coughs> is conversion is not a matter of the mere intellect. It's a matter of the heart. It's, a, it's an ethical, moral decision to say, I'm a sinner, and I need Christ. You know, that's that's what we want to get them to at the end of the day. We don't want to say, we don't want to get them to a point where they're like, okay, what I believe is doesn't make sense compared to all the evidence out there. We want to get them to a point where they're realizing that they have been in rebellion against their creator, but that there is a savior for the creature. Does that make sense? So it's it's not just an intellectual ascent. It's it's a moral, ethical posture that we're striving to get these people towards. And and like Pastor Wade taught us through the, the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism, only God can make that change in people's hearts. The Holy Spirit has to do that, okay? Now, um, yeah, so we covered a lot more ground and not in the order that I had planned, so that's fine. <laughs> um, go to page three with me. So like, yeah, like I said, it's a matter of faith. Everyone has presuppositions. The question is, what are your presuppositions? Is your presupposition scripture, or is it your own reason? Okay? Either way, it's, it's a faith. You have to have faith in your own reason, or you're going to have faith in the presupposition of scripture. Okay? You can't get around it. Everyone has faith. Even atheists have faith. Okay? Now, uh, let, me, let me go back to classical apologetics um, number, uh, letter E right there to kind of... Um, explain this a little better. So in classical apologetics, like Pastor White said, it is valuable. but And we can use it, but we want to make sure not to use it in a way that sees rationality as the absolute criterion of truth. Okay? So in classical apologetics, people often use rationality as the ultimate presupposition. Okay? But that in itself is a presupposition. Why should we presuppose that rationality is ultimate. Why should we even presuppose that rationality is ultimate? So I give you an example right here. There's something called the verification principle. Okay? The verification principle. Read with me. It says, if a statement is made that cannot be verified, then it is a nonsense statement and therefore irrelevant for life. Okay? And I think that's how we think, right? If something can't be verified, why should we believe it? Right? So, for example, if someone says there is a God, 
and and this person would say, well, that's not verifiable, therefore we we can disregard it, right? But what presuppositional apologetics seeks to do is it takes a statement like this. If a statement made that cannot be verified, um, if a statement is made that cannot be verified, then it is a nonsense statement and therefore irrelevant for life. What presuppositional apologetics does is ask, is that statement verifiable? Think about it. Is that statement verifiable? It's not, right? It's not. Does that make sense? You see what I'm trying to get at here? Can you repeat that again? So, so read the statement to yourself. A.J. Ayer's verification principle, okay? Think about that statement for a little bit. So it's saying anything that we, we, we accept must be verifiable, right? Basically, that's the statement it's making. Anything we accept has to be verifiable. So any other statement that is not verifiable, we should disregard, okay? But this guy's statement, this guy's statement that we, we should only accept that which is verifiable, is that statement verifiable? It's not. It's not. It's not verifiable, right? So he is presupposing himself. So like I said, everyone has presuppositions. Everyone's thinking is circular, no matter what they say. It's a matter of authority. Is your authority yourself and your reason, or is it God? Okay? Um, yeah, so I have, a little, I have a little cartoon there for you. You could take a look at that. Even even math, okay? Even math. So Calvin's like, you know, I don't think math is a science. I think it's a religion. And Hobbes is like, a religion? And he's like, yeah. All these equations are like miracles. You take two numbers, and when you add them, they magically become one new number. No one can say how it happens. You either believe it or you don't. This whole book is full of things that have to be accepted on faith. It's a religion. And in the public schools, no less. Call a lawyer. As a math atheist, I should be excused from this. Okay? Now, of course, I don't want to say math is wrong, okay? We, we believe math, and we believe it for good reason. But my question is, why do we believe 2 plus 2 equals 4? Why do we believe 2 plus 2 equals 4? I think most of us would just say it just does, right? It's always been that way. It just does, Okay? And that's, that's all that the, the atheists can say. They can only say that it just does. Okay? But as Christians, as Christians who presuppose the God of Scripture, who presuppose this rational, orderly God, we believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4 because God is. Okay? For, the, for the person who does not believe in God, okay, for the person who does not believe in God, they have no reason to believe 2 plus 2 will equal 4 tomorrow. What are the chances that 2 plus 2 will equal 4 tomorrow for the non-believer? They know in their soul that it will equal 4, but they can't explain why. Okay? They know in their soul that 2 plus 2 will equal 4 tomorrow, but they can't explain why. But the Christian, the Christian believes in a God who holds all things together, right? He says, in Christ all things hold together. That's our God. Our God is the reason that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay? I know it's kind of abstract. Kind of abstract to wrap your heads around, but 
That's the presupposition of scripture. So because of this God, because um, because this God exists, 2 plus 2 equals 4, so the reason that rationality or reason even work at all is because God is rational. Okay? That's, that's what I'm trying to get to. And because God is rational, then we can use reason. But first we must trust that scripture, that the God who speaks, is of higher authority than reason itself. Does that make sense? They will not contradict because God is a God of reason and rationality. But reason and rationality are only what they are because of who God is. Okay? We need to presuppose God for He's the ultimate. Okay? Now, um, let's let's look let's go to the end, okay? Okay. Um now, when we talk about presuppositional apologies, we're going to talk about the method and how to apply this to people and to even to ourselves next week, okay? Um, but here are some things that I want us to understand about, about the method, okay? There are some presuppositions of presuppositional apologetics, okay? There are presuppositions for presuppositional apologetics. It only makes sense. And the first is, like I've been talking all day, the authority of Scripture, Right? Can someone read for me 2 Timothy 3, verse 16? Or maybe someone has it memorized. How do you make it memorized? Uh, all scripture is oh, he does. teaching and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Not on. <laughs> yes, oh, yeah, please. Verse 16. Mm-hmm. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. That's fine. So all scripture is inspired by God, or other translations say it's God-breathed. Scripture is from the very mouth of God, so scripture is the ultimate authority. God even identifies himself with the word, right? He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus Christ, right? God's word and and his, his, his being are interconnected, okay? So, because God's Word is connected to who He is, God's Word is ultimate starting point, okay? And I have we have Westminster Confession of Faith. We don't, you guys can read that on your own time, but that is the crux of our faith. That is the crux of Protestantism, okay? It's, I know we always talk about justification by faith alone versus justification by works, but really, what started it was paying attention to the authority of Scripture. Right? Justification by faith alone means nothing if we don't first uphold the authority of Scripture. Okay, so that's the that's the first presupposition of presuppositional apologetics: a high view of the authority of Scripture. Okay, now this next verse is very important. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter one. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'll read it for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Okay? So Romans 1 is saying there is a creator-creature distinction. But it's also saying all creatures know this. Right? It says they knew God. Right? It says they knew God. Well, what did they do with their knowledge of God? They suppressed the truth. In their unrighteousness, they suppressed the truth about God. Okay? So presuppositional apologetics presupposes that even people who deny God know God, yet they are suppressing the truth about God. We have it right here in Romans chapter 1. Everyone, everyone knows God. Even the atheist knows God. But some people are so depraved that they suppress the truth and they deny his very existence. That is the nature of sin, right? That is what Jesus came to save us from. That is what Jesus came to save us from. So like I said, there's a there's a tension there. Because Romans chapter 1 says right here, everyone knows God, right? Everyone knows God, yet they suppress the truth. So another thing that we can presuppose is that they're in tension, they're in conflict with themselves. Because these people who are made in the image of God know God, but they're trying to suppress that. So we can presuppose in the unbeliever an unnatural tension within their hearts. And that's what presuppositional apologetics seeks to work with. Okay, We don't seek to use evidence and try to get our way there. We, we seek to show them that you cannot live consistently. We, will, we want to push on that tension until it breaks. Okay, When the Spirit opens up their heart, we want to push on that tension until it breaks. We want to show them the inconsistency of their lifestyle and their worldview. And show them how the only way that they can live consistently, the only way that they can live without this tension, is if they embrace the God of Scripture, the God who came down in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what presuppositional apologetics seeks to do. And I want to I show you guys how to do that next week. But I wanted to just talk about presuppositional thinking this week. Does, does that make sense? Do people have questions? Hmm? What do you mean by everyone knows God? Um, so mm-hmm. like people like in like a Bob Village, someone who's never been preached to, mm-hmm. do you mean that they know God as well? Yes, they know God. So what, is, what does it mean by you know God? Um, they know that he exists. They know that um, he demands that they live a certain way. <clears throat> and they know that his wrath is against them for not living that way. Okay, that's what Romans 1 teaches us. Okay, that's what Romans 1, chapter 1, verse um, 18 to 25 teach us. That his wrath is revealed against them and that they are without excuse. They they know this God and in fact, they, they don't just suppress the truth about God, but they exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's what Romans 1 says. So they, they know him, but not as a Christian knows him. They know him only as a God of wrath. But that's why we preach the gospel because God is not just a God of wrath. He's a God of justice and mercy and grace so when we preach the gospel we know that they're suppressing this truth of a wrathful God in their hearts 
but we push on that tension with the beautiful hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they do know God. Um, and I know it seems like nonsensical because, yeah, atheists will just say, I don't believe in God at all, right? But what is our authority again? Is it scripture or is it the experience of the atheist? Maybe he's convinced himself because of the suppression of truth that he doesn't believe in God. But scripture tells us, oh, he knows. He knows. And he needs Christ just like everyone else. Okay? So, classical apologetics is kind of more of a defensive <coughs> apologetic. We're trying to defend the faith with evidence. Presuppositional apologetics is more of an offensive. We want to, like I said, push on that tension. Okay? And I want to show you guys how to do that um, next week. Okay? So, like I said, ultimately apologetics is, is not an intellectual issue. It's a moral one. People are in rebellion against God, and that's the sadness of sin, okay? But we want to preach Christ to them, presupposing that scripture and that Christ are our ultimate authority, okay? Um, yeah. Any questions? No? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, well, that, that'll get into next week, but, but very, very simply, because everyone is made in the image of God, because everyone knows God, there are certain truths <laughs> that they live by um, that, are, that will be inconsistent with the rest of their professed um, belief system. Okay? And we want to show them that the only way uh, to be consistent with the certain things that are true in their belief system is the God of Scripture. Okay, I, th- I guess that wasn't a very good example, but do you, do you have an example like uh, um, someone who's monotheistic that? Um, I don't know. Someone believes in Islam or Judaism. Okay, <coughs> I don't know too much about Judaism or Islam, but um, okay. Uh, I don't know if we have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> See, next week. Yeah, next week. Sorry, next week. Okay, but we'll, we'll wrestle with that then. Islam and Judaism. Is there any, are there any arguments that you guys have heard that you'd like to be addressed? Because I want to use a lot of examples next week to teach the method. So we can talk, let's talk about Islam next week. All right. Okay, what else would you guys like to talk about? I bet a lot of you have agnostic friends, right? Agnostic. Okay, we'll talk about that next week. Um... Are there any, any questions that you guys have heard that you have had trouble answering? Or any questions that you have to yourself that you'd like to talk about? I think just more so, like, because, like, um, like, we are, we live in, like, an Adventist race world, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just trying to, you know, like, it's like, I think, therefore, I am something different. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. So it's like, I think, like, something more so, like, I struggle with just, like, when I, like, like, you know, talking about, like, Basically, 
they know God, and, and we know that Christ is beautiful. We know that Christ is beautiful, right, as believers. So we want to exalt Christ and, and show him as the beautiful Savior that he is. You know, that's why we preach the gospel. We don't, that's why we don't, we don't reason the gospel or we don't evidence the gospel or prove the gospel. We preach the gospel. We proclaim the beauty of Christ. And they have an existential experience with the risen Savior. They don't, they're not convinced by arguments. That's not the way that God has, has sought to bring people to himself, right? First Corinthians chapter 1, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that's the method that our God has chosen. Let me see. Okay. Um, so we'll talk about some of those things next week. We'll talk about the method and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Okay. It'll be a lot shorter and, and less complicated. <laughs> um, can you close this in prayer, Frank? Yeah, sure. Uh, Father, thanks for Sunday School, for um, uh, for Scripture, for what you've revealed to us um, through your Word, God. And we, we pray, Father, that you know we we would continue to um, yes use logic to wrap our minds around your truths, uh, but uh, Father, give us that faith, that um, um, that heart to really uh, grasp these truths and and, and own them, Father. Thank you for Andrew and his love for Bible, for, for teaching, and for you, um, for the gospel. Pray, Father, that we would continue to grow, um, both in head and heart, as we uh, uh, continue to learn together and, and live this life together. So be with us as we um, uh, worship together next hour, and um, may we continue to be moved um, greatly by you, Father. We love you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.